Coming up, the Bucks are one win away from winning their first title in 50 years in what may be a legacy-defining Game 6 for both Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Paul. Colin Morikawa is your British Open champ coming from behind to capture golf's final major of the year. A bizarre weekend in baseball where you had COVID ravaging the Yankees. The Brewers reclaim the NL Central. A wild play and weekend in Pittsburgh and a scare in the nation's capital. Plus, the Olympics are forthcoming at the end of the week. Does anybody really care? There's another NHL expansion draft on deck. We may be in mid-July, but there are lots to discuss in the sports world. I'll have it all for you and then some. But first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, and great spirits as always. As summer continues to rapidly move along, can we push the pause button just for a day or two on this season? Because before you know it, it's going to be August 1st, then September 1st, Labor Day, NFL kickoff, fall. Hey, geez. It goes by in the blink of an eye. But with that being said, let me pull the reins back. I don't want to have that type of juju or energy to kick us off here. It's all smiles. It's all fun. And despite it being a rather quiet week in the world of sports, there is still a lot for me to dissect and a lot for you to digest. So let's get this sports podcast party started as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. 
For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now 205 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It's a Monday, July the 19th, in the year of our Lord 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect on this podcast is as follows The Seattle Kraken will be ready to make selections in two drafts this week, not only on Wednesday for the expansion draft, but this coming Friday as the NHL entry draft will kick off the weekend. I'll get into a lot of other NHL news and notes off the ice to get you set up and prepared for the upcoming two drafts. In baseball, you couldn't have had or even forecasted a weirder weekend for the sport to come out of an all-star break, to have six Yankees, including Aaron Judge, to be put on the health and safety protocols due to COVID. The Brewers taking back the NL Central, well, sort of. A wild blunder and even wilder weekend in Pittsburgh for the Mets and a game in D.C. where gunshots flew outside the stadium. I'll have all the baseball later on the podcast as that will be the next sport and only sport standing here for the next six weeks or so. I'll also talk about Colin Morikawa as he made history by winning the last major golf tournament of the calendar year 2021 across the pond at the British Open. Although you had some great performances by Jordan Spieth and also Louis Ustusen, it was Morikawa winning his second. That's right, he's already won two at the tender age of 24, so we'll talk about that later on. I'll also get into a couple of NFL news and notes. Tom Brady back in the news for him being John Wayne or Tom Cruise, whatever you want to call it, another hero based on his injury last year. I'll also have some thoughts on the Olympics as the torch will be lit come Friday night in Tokyo. And if you listen to this podcast over the years, you know in what direction I'm going to go in regards to the Summer Olympics. And I'll have all that, including my hero and zero of the week. So here we are moving forward throughout the summer, as I said just a second ago. And the crazy thing is, is that this would normally be in the middle of a sports dead zone number two, as I like to call it. For those not familiar with me or the podcast, the first sports dead zone is usually right after the Super Bowl and up until about March Madness. So it's that five-week window where sports, although you do have college basketball and the NBA and NHL, but there comes a little bit of the calm after the storm with all the NFL postseason, obviously the Super Bowl, etc. And then leading up to March Madness, or even the baseball season, if you want to throw that in the mix. So now, here we are, where we're in, or close to late July, and with a month past a normal year where the NBA Finals would have concluded, we are now on the eve of possibly crowning a champion in Milwaukee, which will be tomorrow night. And from where we last picked up a week ago, the Bucks had completed a cakewalk of a victory in Game 3, winning 120-100. to And it was a matter of them evening the series and then hoping to go to Phoenix to at least win one of two road games, whether it's five or seven. And we all know the easier game to win, if you want to call it that, would be five over seven because you don't want to have to have all the pressure put on you to go play in that building, to know Chris Paul and the whole dynamic of the Suns, which we'll get to in a second, but... When you look at these last two games, I'm not going to say they're a carbon copy by any stretch, but this is all you need to know about this Buck team. And I said this last week, is that they've been able to weather storms and they've been able to play in these type of games and have the experience and to be battle-tested 
And all you have to do is just look back at the last two and a half years to show you why that they're in this position tomorrow night to win a title. One, when we look back two years ago, them losing to the Toronto Raptors up 2-0, they pretty much coasted through those first two rounds. And then with that 2-0 series lead, they were able to spit the bit, losing four straight. And we know what Toronto did in the NBA Finals that year. Fast forward a year later to 2020 in the bubble after winning their Opening round, they go down 0-3 to the Heat. They do win a game four, although you lose Giannis in the process due to injury and then bow out in five to where now they come into this season, another shortened season, but with the expectations, yes, kind of high. We understand that they were back-to-back one seeds over the last two years, but with Brooklyn restocking and not necessarily with James Harden, just the presence of Kevin Durant coming back for the first time in two years, And then you had the Harden trade there in January to where the Sixers played well to get the number one seed. And the Bucs were that one team that was just laying in the weeds. And then now we get to the postseason. They avenged last year's loss to the Heat in the first round by sweeping them. They end up beating Brooklyn down 0-2 in that series and then down 3-2 where they blew a game five in Brooklyn where they had a chance to win. They were up by 17 And in the heroics of Kevin Durant, the 48 or 49 points in the 48-minute stretch of the game. But then they were able to win a Game 7. Thankfully that Durant had his foot on the three-point line. If not, the Bucs probably would have been on their 10th vacation by now. And after beating the Nets and then being down 0-1 to the Hawks in the Eastern Conference Finals, they were able to win four of the next five, winning six games. And then now the scene shifts to a game four, to where they're down two games to one, but after a resounding game three victory, what were the Bucks going to have in store? And just like I set the whole table to now spoon feed you on what happened in these games four and five, goes to show you for everything that I detailed, this is why the Bucks have put themselves in this position. They were tougher. They were guttier. Not only that, more battle-tested versus the Suns team that... I don't want to hear in the first series against the Lakers, they were down 2-1, yes, but Anthony Davis left off the floor minutes into the second quarter of the game, or I believe it was right before the half, and pretty much Davis, other than a few minutes in game number six, was nowhere to be found. So you could say that the Suns, well, hey, they had their moment in the postseason where they were down, and we want to see what they're made of. To me, that doesn't even count. Then you had the... Nuggets, where they swept them out of the postseason and the reigning MVP of the league and Nikola Jokic. Then there was the Clippers series where they were up 2-0 and up 3-1. Yes, maybe a surprising game five loss at home where they could have wrapped up the series, but we all know in game six, then they went ahead to finally win the Western Conference Finals, Chris Paul, first trip to the finals, the whole deal. And then now after a 2-0 series lead, they gave it all right back. And when you look at the Buc- and when you look at the Suns in contrast to the Bucks and what they've done, they have shown to be the team that doesn't have the experience, that doesn't have the toughness, that doesn't have that extra gear to either slow down or stop a team or to push themselves ahead. Because we'll start with Game Four when the Suns had a nine-point lead in the fourth quarter. And we understand nine-point leads in any NBA game, they might as well be a one-possession game. We've seen 
double-digit comebacks. We've seen 20-some-odd-point comebacks in the postseason over the years. And it's one of those things where, yes, you could look at that and say, geez, how did this team fall apart? How did this team falter? This team choked. This team gagged. It always seems to be the team that had the big lead is the one that you're going to point the finger at more so than the team that came back and were able to prevail and pull their team out of the fire. But with the game there on Wednesday night, it boils down there to the end where Devin Booker, who had a pathetic game three, obviously had a very good offensive output, but in those final few minutes, did not get a call, which would have fouled him out of the game, and that would have been probably the biggest controversial foul in NBA history if the Suns would have gone on and won that game because we wouldn't have known how game five would have played out. And Booker, who had five fouls, and on that break there, what, about three minutes to go in the game, where, I mean, please, he didn't hack. I believe it was Drew Holiday on the play, and how the refs didn't call that was beyond me. I couldn't believe it. I thought Booker was going to be gone. And Booker, over the course of these last couple of games, and pretty much throughout the whole series other than Game 3, has been phenomenal. He scored the most points. I believe he has uh, over 540 points right now in the postseason, which eclipsed Rick Barry for the first time in the postseason for most points throughout. And even with that, and the Bucks were able to tie the game at 99. They were able to get some key baskets, especially by Chris Middleton, who as we've seen time after time in big spots, he is your closer on this Milwaukee Buck team because you know Drew Holiday isn't going to be the guy who's going to take that big shot, or even Giannis for that matter, unless it's from within... 10 feet, or right near the basket. But Middleton made shot after shot after shot, and he's another guy that's hot and cold and invisible and very streaky, but he put the team on his back. And then you had the play of the game where at 101.99, as Chris Paul was trying to search for DeAndre Ayton, and he throws up a lob where Ayton was about to go up and flush it through, but Giannis, who had his back, Two Aiton at the time had to do a 180, was able to get a piece of the ball, an enormous block there where the turn of events as the Bucks were going down the court, they actually missed a shot attempt. But when Chris Ball comes back up the court and he just loses his balance and was able to fumble the ball away, and then they were able to get that securing and insurance basket to put the game away. So the toughness. The grit, the determination of the Bucks, just came at the most opportune time for them. And then on the flip side of that, the Suns weren't able to seal the deal. And Chris Paul had a nightmare of a game, did not shoot well, turnovers left and right. Definitely his worst performance here in the NBA Finals. So now you have the series tied at two, going back to Phoenix, where a lot of people thought some home cooking. The way the series has gone, obviously it's been a home series throughout. And then the Suns come out blazing to where they had a 16-point end of the first quarter lead. So you would think that, all right, the Bucks are going to make their run. They're going to make a move. But let's just see to what extent. They come back with a huge second quarter and score 43 points in the process, which I believe is the second most in a quarter in NBA Finals history. And they actually have a two-point lead going into the half. The... Bucks then continued to put the pressure on the Suns. They built up their lead to as much as 14 in the fourth quarter. And then the Suns made a run behind Devin Booker. 
Even Chris Paul had a sluggish first three quarters, to say the least, but then poured it on a little bit to have the Suns come back. They made it close to a point where it was 120 to 119. They're late. And then now, this is where you had to look at the Bucks' resolve to see if they were going to not only weather the storm, but make a defensive stop, make a key play, whatever it took for them to get this game home. Because as I was watching this unfold, the first thing I thought about was the game five in Brooklyn that I mentioned where they had the 17-point lead and then it withered down to none until the Nets took the lead, won the game, and then you probably thought there's no way the Bucs are going to win the series. I had a feeling that the Bucs were going to prevail here based on the experience and everything that happened not only in the past two and a half years, but even going back to that game five against the Nets. And sure enough, they got the big steal there from Drew Holiday off of Devin Booker and then the alley-oop to Giannis to slam home a game five victory to bring them back to the Midwest, back to home cooking, back to the Deer District, and hopefully in front of Kareem, Oscar Robertson, Bobby Dandridge, etc., members of that first and only NBA champion that Milwaukee could claim, in which that building will be rocking, to say the least, tomorrow night, just thirsting and hoping that they could close it out in six games. And that's pretty much been the difference when you look at the last two games, the Suns were just not able to make a play or a key stop or get a clutch basket, and the Bucks were able to do so. And that's what it comes down to. And in NBA Finals, which the first three games were pretty much ho-hum, the last two you've had some juice, and who knows what to expect tomorrow. And that's going to lead to this storyline, at least for me, and I'm sure you'll probably hear it a lot in all the talk shows, ESPN, Fox Sports, etc. But this is going to be interesting from both Giannis Antetokounmpo, as we know, the face of the Bucks, and I'm not going to say future to the league because the guy's won two MVPs and he still hasn't even hit the prime of his NBA career to where Chris Paul and everything that we've talked about regarding him over the last, well, pretty much two months since the postseason began and how this is going to be defining for both guys. Now, The reason why I say Game 6 more than Game 7 is because we got to get to or through Game 6 before we can even get to Game 7. So for Giannis, and I'll start with him, we know that over the years we've seen Giannis to be a guy not only competitive, fiery, but not the typical NBA superstar who fraternizes with the other players. Not to say he isn't friendly or isn't cordial to his brethren, but at the same time, He's not that guy that's going to yuck it up and high-five it and you know have a hug fest with the opposing team. So I know at this moment, his sole focus is to not just win the championship, of course, but I'm sure he's going to do not only whatever it takes to kind of put themselves in a position where they could have this rocking chair type of game. Not to say it's going to be like game three, but I would think that the... Bucks are going to push the pedal to the metal at all costs. They're going to have the crowd behind them. He's likely probably going to win the finals MVP, especially if he puts up another big performance. And this is going to mean a lot, not only to him, but also to the city of Milwaukee, everything that's happened over the last two plus years to finally get to the mountaintop of the NBA would be super rewarding for a guy who was drafted 13th overall back in 2013 eight years in the league, two MVPs, all the naysayers, the Bucs don't have enough, the Bucs are 
not a title contending team. They don't have what it takes, etc. And now for him, I'm sure he could taste it and know that the last thing he wants to do is get on a plane to go back to Phoenix to play in a game seven. So I'm going to look at Giannis as him being the focal point to the game tomorrow night, knowing does he have that killer instinct, that assassins-like mentality to say, give me the ball, get on my back, I'm going to set the tempo, and we're going to go home with this title, and that's it. And then on the other side of the court, Chris Paul, if he puts up 35 points and... 13 rebounds, chances are they could win the game, but even in a loss, you could look at it and say, all right, he went out valiantly. Game four, he's going to have nightmares all summer if they end up losing a series because he's going to look back at that game, especially the turnover late when they had an opportunity to, at that point, tie the game. But for Paul, anything short of him not going back to Phoenix for a game seven Not only is it going to sting, but you have to wonder if he's ever going to get back in that position to win a title again, especially after being up 0-2. And game four is going to be the game that everybody's going to circle when it comes to them not winning a title if that plays out the way it may come tomorrow night. And Paul, we know the type of career he's had. I don't have to go through his whole resume. We talked about it after they beat the Clippers there in the conference finals. But this is one where he's going to have to put up somewhere in the upper 20s to low 30s because you figure Booker's going to give you somewhere in the 30s, maybe even 40. So you would think you'd have to get minimum 70 points between the two and then hopefully another 40 from the rest of the team in order to put themselves in a position where they can win or be ahead or even just be in the game for that matter. Because as we know, that is going to be a hornet's nest at the Pfizer Forum there tomorrow night. And if Paul happens to go out with a 5 for 18, 16 point, 6 assist type of game, I talked about the back of his basketball playoff card, and although this year has been stellar, but it's going to revert back to what we saw in his days in New Orleans, his days at the Clippers, his days in Houston, and all right, you could say OKC last year, 7 games, but... That was the bubble. I'll give him a pass on that. If he comes up small here in a loss, it's not going to look good for Paul. I don't care how you slice it. Again, it's only what we see. I'm not trying to pound the guy. I'm not, I'm, I hope he has a big game in him tomorrow. You want to see a competitive game. You don't want to see a blowout. Now, I'll be honest. I've been rooting for the Bucks all series, and I said going into the series how the Suns would win in six because I didn't know the severity of Giannis's injury. And that was the only reason why I picked the Suns in that regard. But if I knew that Giannis was going to be anything close to what he was now, I would have picked the Bucks in six. And I get people to say, oh yeah, you can say that now, Jay Reels. Well, check the receipts. If Giannis was healthy to me because the team was tougher and everything that I explained, that's why I would have chose them to win. But if Giannis wasn't going to play or if he was going to be at half speed or 50%, how could you even pick the Bucks to win an NBA title? Because we haven't seen Giannis on this stage. It's not as if the guy's won a title or two and 50% of Giannis is better than 100% of the rest of the league, which could be said maybe in the regular season. But in high-pressured, first-time finals type games, I don't know how Giannis was going to come through. And as we've seen so far, he looks 
pretty healthy to me, and he's come through, especially in the last three games, and even the game two where they lost, where he had 42 and 12. So it's not as if he hasn't gone out there and spit the bid or put up a stinker. And I don't expect that tomorrow night at home or even in the game seven in Phoenix if it happens to be stretched to the limit. So that's what we have, people. And tomorrow night, I don't know how the Suns are going to do it. To me, their recipe is has to be minimum 70 points from those two guys, Booker and Paul. And Aiton has to give you a ton of rebounds. He doesn't need a ton of points. Yes, he's going to have to contribute on the offensive end, but he's going to have to have a monster game on the boards in order for him to win. Kind of like game one, I believe, what do you have, 18 and 17? He needs something like that. He needs to put forth an effort comparable to what he did in game one. If not, the Suns aren't going to come out alive. And I know that Mikhail Bridges gave you a very good performance the other day. He was 5 for 5 from 3. But we know how role players, especially at home, they'll play a lot better with the crowd and their friendly confines, the familiar surroundings to take their game a notch higher. Can he duplicate that on the road in a game six in an elimination game? If you're going to ask me right now, I'm going to say no. Or anybody else on the team for that matter. Whether your name is Cameron Payne, Cam Johnson, does Jay Crowder have four or five threes in his pocket to give themselves a shot in the fourth quarter or at least to put themselves in a position to win? Where you know the Bucks are going to be chomping at the bit knowing that they came back from an 0-2 deficit in Brooklyn and now an 0-2 deficit here. And as I said, who in the hell would want to fly back to Phoenix for Game 7? I just see the Bucks winning tomorrow night. Would I be surprised if the Suns win? I'm going to say yes. Now, I know that sounds like I'm counting them out. Of course, they're in the game. They're playing in the game, so they do have a shot. But their chance to win this series was in Game 4. And even if they would have lost Game 5 like they did the other night, but they would be up 3-2 coming to Milwaukee, at least they would have had the mental and maybe to a certain extent spiritual and psychological advantage to know that they've beaten the Bucks in their building that they could do it again. But they haven't done so. Obviously, now's the time where they're going to need to because it's put up or shut up. But at the same time, with what the Bucks have endured throughout this postseason, is it going to be a shoe-in that the Suns are going to be in this game come midway through the third, end of the third, start of the fourth, or at some point in the fourth quarter? It's going to be tough. So the NBA season can conclude tomorrow or even Thursday in Phoenix for Game 7. We'll see how that plays out, of course. And a couple of quick NBA news and notes. I know the Wizards hired Wes Unsell Jr. as their coach, which the lineage in the Washington franchise going back to Wes Unsell, who passed away last year, sadly, but his son will take over at the helm with a four-year deal. So we'll see how that goes for the junior of Wes Unseld. Also, the NBA will have the play-in tournament for 2021 and 2022. Next year is the 75th anniversary of the league. I don't know if they want to have that based on the 75th anniversary. I don't know. I would say no, but it's another wrinkle. We saw how it played out. I wasn't in favor of it. I know it puts teams that would be out of the top eight to give them an opportunity to possibly get themselves into the tournament. Pretty much... You had Memphis, and we understand what Memphis did in winning the two games, especially at Golden State, to get themselves 
ready to play the one seed in Utah. And they did win a game in that series, but obviously we're not competitive enough to push the series even further. But you're going to have that next year. Again, I'm not in favor of it, but hey, let the NBA do it for one more year and we'll see how that works out. And then the biggest secret in the land was finally revealed where Kawhi Leonard did have surgery for a partially torn ACL. I mean, this was an injury that you couldn't diagnose or couldn't even think of how severe it was until two weeks after the series against the Suns were over. And just goes to show the MO and how Kawhi Leonard is as far as him dancing or him drumming to his own beat, not knowing what his next step is going to be because he can opt out and maybe have the Miami Heat be in services to try to swoop in with Pat Riley. And he doesn't need to throw the rings on the table, that's for sure, because Kawhi could show Pat Riley two of his own. But we'll see how that offseason saga goes. But because it was partially torn, not that I'm a doctor by any stretch, but you would think the recovery is going to be a lot less than it would be if he if it was a full tear of his ACL. So just something to keep an eye on as we move on throughout the rest of the summer and into the fall. That's it for the NBA now. I'm going to turn my attention to baseball. I want to get into the British Open, but I figured let me get to the baseball because this has been one of the most wildest weekends that I can even ever imagine when it comes to the sport. And granted, they had an all-star break to start off the week where Shohei Otani was all the rage and all the talk in Colorado between the home run derby, which he didn't even make it out of the first round against Juan Soto. Pete Alonso was your home run derby winner. And I don't want to sound negative toward my own player, but the bravado, the arrogance, and I believe just based on some of the things that I read that a lot of the other all-stars, and mind you, Alonso wasn't an all-star this year. He just showed up for the derby. They weren't really warm and fuzzy toward Alonzo. I guess he came across as pompous. I guess he came across as a guy that was really into himself and it was just a home run derby. And I get it. He's a kid at heart. He's having fun. Not only that, but there's a million dollar price tag on that for a guy that's making $675,000. And not to say anybody's going to shed a tear over that, but to add, tack on another million to that, there was incentive. And even in the post game, interview that he had where he went up to the podium and they announced him, hey, here's Pete Alonso, the home run derby winner. And then he comes out and says the two-time or back-to-back. All right, Pete, uh, we didn't need to have the, need to be extra about it. But all right, he had his day in the sun, good for him. So with that and then the game, which was the Vladimir Guerrero home run, that bomb that he hit. And of course, it's Colorado, so it's going to fly 5,000 feet. But you had a very lackluster 5-2 type game, which I knew and didn't watch a second of. So now, as we kick off the second half to where the only game on Thursday night was the Red Sox and Yankees, as they were going to start off the schedule as a standalone game, no other teams were playing. And what happens just a few hours before the start of that game, they had to postpone it because six players, including Aaron Judge, Gio Urshela, Kyle Higashioka and three relievers came down with COVID, so they have to be put in the health and safety protocol. A lot of people thought that the series could have been in jeopardy, and as we know, this was an enormous series for the Yankees because there were already eight back. The start of this second half to where they had four games in the Bronx against the Red Sox, followed by two games against the Phillies at home before going back to Boston 
for four more games and then after that going to Tampa for three games. So just a humongous stretch and possible turn of events of their season for this Yankee team. So we had that to start off with to turn into the weekend to where the Yankees get shut out the following night. They're now 0-7 against the Red Sox. Saturday, the game was aborted due to a rainstorm, which was marred by a fan throwing a baseball, hitting the back of Alex Verdugo. And the fan was banned for life for throwing a ball, which is the second time that we've seen Yankee fans act like fools. Because if you remember in a series earlier against Tampa, to where I think they scored a bunch of runs in the ninth inning. I guess the game was tied. I think the score was like 8-2, to the final. But then they scored a ton of runs in the ninth inning, and then they started throwing stuff on the field. I mean, you know, typical Yankee fans. And understands the 25-year-old who gets tanked and couldn't tell you who Babe Ruth is if he fell on you or couldn't even tell you who Joe DiMaggio or Mickey Mantle was. So you had that to deal with. And to think they finally got their first one against the Red Sox and it had to have a rain delay or to have the game finished because the rain wasn't going to let up. And then last night they cemented that with a 9-1 win where Gleyber Torres hit home runs in back-to-back games. He's a guy that's been MIA the whole year, as I talked about a few weeks ago. So now the Yankees, with two out of three, gaining a game, six in a loss, but seven in the division. And the wild card right now, I don't know what it is, but we have a scenario where let's see if this is going to build some momentum for the Yankees as they try to make a push to see if they're going to be buyers or sellers. Remains to be seen. The trade deadline is still 12 days away. So then now... As we move into the weekend, we'll start in Pittsburgh where the Mets picked up from where they left off at City Field against the Pirates to where now they go to PNC Park. And you had a dust up there between Marcus Stroman and John Nagowski to where Stroman called Nagowski a clown or vice versa. Now, I know Stroman is a bit of a hothead. Let's face it. I know he's on my team. I got to call as I see it. He's a guy that if you get under his skin, he's going to bark at you. He's going to start up something. And that's what you saw there on the first base line at the end of the fourth. I believe it was the fourth inning. So you had that to deal with where the Mets lose 4-1. Then Saturday night, the Mets jump out to a 6-0 lead. Backed by two home runs by J.D. Davis, who's finally off of the injured list. And was able to put up some offensive fireworks to where they come all the way back. The Pirates to make it 6-5. Brandon Nimmo hits a home run in the top of the night to make it 7-5. And then Edwin Diaz comes in. So now I have to have my first Edwin Diaz moment of the year. Or Diaz rant, whatever you want to call it. Now we know that Diaz, if it's a clean inning, ninth inning, where he just has to get three outs, he's been near perfect this year. It's the other games coming in tied, coming in at the middle of an inning, trying to get a four or five out save. That's where he gets into trouble. So here it was, Saturday night, 7-5 lead, and then the wheels fall off to where he gives up a grand slam to Jacob Stallings, a 9-7 loss, just a brutal loss for the Mets where they've lost two of their last three games to the Pirates dating back to last Sunday at home to where they had a 5-0 lead and lost 6-5. And then for them to lose this game on Saturday, the last thing you're thinking of, wait a minute, there's no way that the Pirates, the Pittsburgh Pirates, are going to start off their second half by sweeping the Mets. So then yesterday, as I'm looking at the scores, early on, and I see 6-0, I'm saying to myself, geez, they're going to get swept by the Pirates, and not only just swept, but embarrassed. And embarrassing to the point where Taiwan Walker, on a 
dribbler up the third base line, tries to swat it foul, in which he does, but there's only one thing. The home plate umpire called the ball fair, and it was when you checked out the replay, but he swatted the ball so far that it went toward, if not inside, of the pirate dugout to where everybody's standing around, the merry-go-round in the infield of pirates are just circling the bases, sliding into home or crossing home plate, and all the Mets want to do is just say, no, the ball was fouled to where Luis Rojas comes out, he gets thrown out of the game, Taiwan Walker, his ERA goes through the roof. He doesn't even make it out of the first inning because he's walking the ballpark. And now the last thing you're thinking of is, oh, geez, the Mets, they were able to get six runs the night before, courtesy mostly of J.D. Davis. They haven't been able to score. Their offense has been anemic. Where the hell are they going to get these type of runs to get back in the game? Well, sure enough, they actually do get back in the game. And here it was in the ninth inning, thanks to the heroics of Michael Conforto, who's been on the aisle most of the season to begin with, so they salvaged that game, but the two things that they don't salvage coming out of this weekend was one, Francisco Lindor on Friday night, after a swing and a ground ball a second, pulled his oblique, so he's on the IL for 10 days, which you know that's going to be two months, those oblique injuries never heal, I don't care what type of medicine, rest, injections, that suck is going to be, ugh, that's going to be forever, so you're not going to see him for quite a while, and then to add Injury to more injury and insult, I might add. Jacob deGrom has now been placed on the IL with forearm tightness. As he said, it's frustrating. He just wants to get back out there. And now you got to wonder whether or not we're going to see the ace of the team and the front runner for the Cy Young. But who knows if he misses any more starts, will he be eligible for that? But that's not the important thing. The bottom line is you have your ace that's out. You have David Peterson, who's been terrible, but he's also out of the rotation. You have Tyler McGill, who's actually pitched well and blew the game there for the Mets, that is, on Saturday night for him. But now all of a sudden you have starting pitching woes and injuries that are mounting up. The bullpen has been eh of late. Look at Seth Lugo. I just talked about Diaz. And even with all that being said, the Mets are still two games ahead of the Phillies in first place. But this is a margin that the Mets could certainly let slip right through their hands. And I believe they've been in first place since, what, May 6th? So that's going to be in jeopardy this week. Although the Phillies do play the Yankees for two games, and I can never root for the Yankees. I'm sorry, but in this case, I'm going to have to root for them, reluctantly. So the Mets, and after this trip to Cincinnati, they come home for a long homestand. Let's see how they perform there. They have the Blue Jays coming in. And the Blue Jays, they're going to have their games in Toronto starting July 30th. So they'll be back north of the border playing in the confines of their home stadium. But they have the Blue Jays and then they have makeup games. The Braves come into town. Doubleheaders abound. So the Mets will continue to play more doubleheaders than you could count as this season moves closer to the trade deadline. And who knows what the Mets are going to do at that point. And then to top it all off, we're still in the theme of the wild weekend to open up the second half. You had this scenario in D.C. at the end of the sixth inning to where there were gunshots fired outside the stadium on the third base side of the facility. And I've been to that stadium once, and it's one of those stadiums that when you walk in, the field is below street level. So when you actually get to that main concourse at street level, you're pretty much looking down onto the field. 
And there were 33,000 in the ballpark that night to where, I guess before the music came on or right after the last pitch or the last out was made, then you hear these gunshots and everybody's running for cover. Some people were even leaving the stadium because they didn't know if it was coming from inside the stadium. That's how close it was. It's not like on that third base side, literally when you walk out of the ballpark, the street's right there. Which you could say for a lot of ballparks, but usually there's a little bit of a gap between the concourse, then you have concessions, and then you may have the turnstiles, and then you get to the street. Nationals Park is not like that. So pretty much as you get out of your seat and get to that concourse, the exit is right there. So I can only imagine if you're hearing these gunshots go off and you happen to be at that side of the stadium and the last thing you're thinking is, wait a minute, are those gunshots? And then when you have a sense and think that it possibly could be gunshots, you say to yourself, oh my God, is that coming from in the stadium? What's going on here? Uh, There was panic everywhere. The players, managers, they mentioned that it was scary. They were just trying to get people to run for cover and do the best they could to go away, you know, run away from the threat. Just a scary scene there to where it was a couple of cars outside. They were shooting at each other. A couple of people were injured. One woman who was leaving the ballpark got grazed, I believe, in the back. Thankfully, nobody was seriously hurt or even worse, perished during this incident. But man, uh, just when you thought it couldn't get any crazier, boy, Major League Baseball on and off the field had just a wild and wacky one. And then to get back on the diamond... You had the Reds win three out of four in Milwaukee last week to where they won the last three games of the series. So Milwaukee had some favors to pay back and they did so in Cincinnati by sweeping the Reds to extend their lead in the Central by seven games. So who knows if the Reds are going to be heard from? And that was a big series for the Reds because as I said last week in my Pretenders Contenders segment, are they going to be a team that if they're going to be hanging around for a division or maybe even a wild card, will they go out and get any type of reinforcements to put themselves thrust right in the middle of a pennant race? Well, for the division right now, it does not look good, barring a collapse here by the Brewers over the last two-plus months of the season. So the Brewers were able to put some distance and now have some breathing room in that division. And pretty much everything is the same elsewhere as we talked about last week. Because again, you only had three games this weekend. With all the teams, it's not as if you had the full week where there was a lot of positions that were being jockeyed as far as divisions go. The Red Sox still have a slim lead in the East. Two in the loss, but just a half game overall. Excuse me, I read that wrong. Tied in the loss, a half game ahead of the Tampa Bay Rays. And then you have the Blue Jays hanging around a game ahead of the Yankees. White Sox look to be in cruise control for the AL Central as they're eight games ahead of the Indians. Houston and Oakland will duke it out for the West, where Houston is up by four in the loss, three and a half overall. The National League East, who knows how that's going to play out. I would not be surprised if the Phillies make a push, even barring their terrible bullpen. But you have them. Atlanta, even without Ronald Acuna Jr., can you trust them? And will the Braves, I know they brought in Jock Peterson and Steven Vogt, the catcher. Are those guys that are going to make an impact here? Over the last two months of the season, I don't think so. But who knows what Alex Anthopoulos, the GM, who knows what he has up his sleeve to bring back a player of a not necessarily of Acuna's ilk or his type of 
performance or reputation, but at the same time, you would think maybe he's going to see what's out there to kind of get that spot filled to where they may not be able to duplicate that type of production, but at the same time, come close to it. Remains to be seen. And then out west, Giants, Dodgers, Padres, as they try to make a push here to probably be the three teams that will make it to the postseason. But of course, if that's going to be the case where the three teams come out of the West, the team that ends up in first place will have the luxury of sitting back to wait on the winner of that because as we all know, that's going to be a one-game playoff if it happens to be Dodgers and Padres as of today. And that would be a fascinating one-game playoff. I mean, think about this. Could you imagine if the A's were to overtake the Astros and somehow the Yankees crept into the postseason to where your wildcard games would be Padres at Dodgers and then either Yankees at Astros or vice versa? MLB will do cartwheels, backflips, and handstands if that's the case. But still plenty of baseball to be played and we'll obviously continue to keep an eye on it. And one last thing, let me quickly go through these over-under numbers. I meant to talk about this last week on the air, but now that we're past the All-Star break, for those who are curious, my over-under numbers for the year, I picked three overs, three unders. So the win total by Las Vegas before the start of the year, I have to pick which team is going to be over or under. So my overs right now at 73.5 for the Marlins, and that's going to come right down to the wire. They currently have 40, so they need 34 to get that. I think they'll win 34 games. And they lost Sixto Sanchez, one of their top pitchers, due to, I believe, not Tommy John. I believe he had a a labor issue with a shoulder. So that's a tough break. And Sandy Alcantara is not having a knockout year, although Trevor Rogers is the all-star, and he's pretty much picked up the slack. But we'll see what's going to happen with the Marlins down the stretch. I picked Minnesota 89.5 as an over. I know, terrible job by my part. And even the Cardinals, where I they have to be one of the more disappointing teams. The Cardinals right now, 46 and 47. Now, they're on a pace to be a game under 500 or somewhere around there. Is it out of the possibility they can win 89? Probably not, but I don't think they're going to do so. So that's right there. I'm looking at 0-3, maybe 1-2. And then my unders, Toronto at 86.5, which that's going to be close. And chances are they may sneak above that. The Cubs, 79.5. And the way they played over the last month, I may be on the verge of getting that. And then the Padres, 92.5, where that's going to be a close one too because they're 55-41. and I'm in the mix with a lot of these. You can forget about the Twins. That's done. And I'll even say the Cardinals. But the other four are up in the air. If I get into 4-2... and Not great, but certainly better than 500 anything below that. So we'll come back Labor Day and we'll assess then and see how close we are to getting these over-unders. So we still have obviously another six weeks before we get to that point. All right, now I'm going to turn my attention to the final golf major of the year already. I know I talked about it last week, how I think they should move the PGA back to August just to have a little bit of separation. I see why they did it. A few years ago where they wanted to have it in successive months, April, May, June, July. But now you got nothing to look forward to. And I know there's the Ryder Cup and some of the FedEx Cup stuff that golf, although it's not a major, but they'll wrap their arms around and make it like a major. But we know at the end of the day, it's not the case. 
So with what took place at Sandwich Bay over the weekend where Luis Ustuzin, a guy that has been very competitive here throughout the course of this year, especially in the majors, who had a lead after day two, the second round of the tournament, a lead after day three. So going into the final 18 holes, him in good position, up there with Jordan Spieth and also Colin Morikawa. But at the end of the day, in his first ever appearance, I might add, at the British Open, Morikawa wins in cool, calm, and collected fashion as his putting was, I tell you, that was a clinic that what you saw on the greens to be able to putt the way he did, it was Tiger-esque. That's how good it was. He birdied eight of the final 31 holes of the match. Didn't even bogey throughout the course of that stretch. And then you want to couple that with the weather. Uh, Listen, when we watched over the years, all these British Opens, whether it was in St. Andrews or in Carnoustie or some of the other areas where the British Open takes place, this was not a day at the beach. This was a weekend at the beach where you didn't have to worry about the clouds, the bluster, the rain. You didn't have to see windbreakers. You didn't have to see wind whipping with the pins and the flags. I tell you, I couldn't believe what I was seeing here. But Mother Nature, as much as she cooperated, and which was a boon because right there by the water, and knowing that anytime you're playing by the water, you're going to have to deal with elements, as you saw in Kiwa Island at the PGA and also at the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines there last month. But for Morikawa to have the performance for such a young guy, 24 years old, first ever appearance, he's actually the only golfer in history to appear in his first major and win it twice. Meaning that the PGA last year, if you remember in September, he won the PGA. I believe that was at Pebble. And then he wins, and that was his first time, and then he wins the Open at his first time. 24 years old, stupendous. Like I talked about, his putting was otherworldly, remarkable to say the least. And Ulusthusen, since having that lead in the middle of the second round, as much as he played well... But the thing that killed him was that bogey at four. And then there was the stretch coupled with Morikawa getting those birdies from seven to nine where Ustuzan then started to slip and Spieth got into the ring as far as him being near the top of the leaderboard. So for him to play so well for pretty much the course of when you add it up, maybe 40 some odd holes, for it to just go down the tubes the way it did, man. That was just a tough stretch. Well, maybe 40 is a little too strong because I believe that was the start of the 12th hole up until about the 6th or 7th hole here. So you're talking about somewhere in the 30s. But just tough for Ustuzan to get that close and for him to just fall off a cliff. And then Spieth was hanging tough with Morikawa. Spieth, who was in the mix throughout the last couple of days, also played phenomenally well. Said he did everything he could in the post-match interview. But with Morikawa being clutch, and especially the two putts on 10 and 15, including the one on 14, the birdie that he had, where it had to go up a small incline and into the cup. And right there, he increased his lead to two strokes over Spieth, and there was no turning back for him. And when you putt as well as he has, there's no way, unless he's hitting the ball in the trees, or he's hitting it in the water, there's no way he's going to lose this match. Or any match on any course for that matter. 
And Morikawa, now you got to wonder what his future is going to lie here because at being a young pro, winning two majors already, and I'm not trying to say he's going to be an all-time great, but now the trajectory and he's trending north here. So we're going to have to look at him over the course of the next couple of years to see what kind of player he could be. Is he going to be a guy, I'm not going to say a one-hit wonder, but is he going to be a guy that's going to be a steady influence or a steady participant where he's going to be near or top at the leaderboard in a lot of these tournaments, especially the majors? Or is he going to be a guy that's going to be inconsistent? Is he going to be as smooth and as calm as what we've seen him here, especially at the British where a lot of these golfers, they don't really know the surroundings and aren't really familiar with some of the courses that are over there, i.e. Bryson DeChambeau, and I'll get to him in a second. But for Morikawa to perform the way he has over the last year, you know that the sky's the limit for this kid, and you're going to have to pay attention to him moving forward because for him to already have two majors under his belt, and he hasn't even hit 25 yet, he has a very bright future ahead. So overall, the weather was a tremendous factor. We talked about how Uostuzen was close, but no cigar. Spieth, who played well and was valiant, but fell short, and it was all Morikawa. So when you put that in a big, giant nutshell of how the 2021 British Open was, there it is. And as far as the notables, the guys who didn't make the cut, Phil is going to be tops of the list. He didn't make the cut, was nowhere to be found. I believe the first day he shot an 80. (laughs) That's all you need to know about Phil's performance and him saying sayonara after Friday's second round. You also had Patrick Cantlay, Patrick Reed, Keegan Bradley, Stuart Sink, Jason Day, among the other notables who didn't make the cut. As far as DeChambeau is concerned, he shot a 65 yesterday, and although he did say that he learned a lot, hadn't really played a lot overseas over the course of his career, but certainly he's going to have this close to the vest to think about for next year when he gets back there. But for Thursday, when he shot a 71, and he called out his equipment maker, who I believe was, I recall off the top of my head, oh, it was Cobra, was the equipment maker, and he talked about how these drivers sucked and blamed that. Can you look in the mirror, my guy, and think maybe you could put some blame on yourself and your play before you use equipment as an excuse? And that's the one thing about DeChambeau that you don't like, him already starting to point figures or him you know, ranting on the course that, ah, geez, you know, blaming on the equipment as opposed to his swing, his mechanics, etc. So we'll see what DeChambeau does next year at this time when he goes back to England or wherever it's going to be in the UK for next year's British Open. Brooks Kepka also had a very good tournament, although Saturday put him out of contention. He shot a 72. He did finish eight under. But uh, that Saturday is going to be one that maybe hasn't had enough sleep or a lack of sleep because of that. Dustin Johnson, how about him? By far his best play of the year. We know he didn't make the cut at the Masters. We know he didn't make the cut at the PGA. Same for the U.S. Open. You got to wonder, geez, for a guy who won the Masters in November and won by shooting 20 under was literally invisible throughout the course of all the majors here this year. Ends up shooting 7 under. Just like Kepka did not shoot well on Saturday, he shot a 73. 
But at least if there's any way to salvage his major season, at least he made the cut and performed the way Dustin Johnson performed. Now, granted, he was 7-under. I know Morikawa ended, what, 15-under? But if there's anything that you put in his back pocket for some momentum heading into the fall, you would think he's going to perform in the Ryder Cup. At least hats off to him that he showed up and at least played fairly well despite Saturday not being the way he would have liked. As far as my guy that I predicted to win, Tommy Fleetwood, I also talked about Lee Westwood. He was near the top of the leaderboard after day one, Fleetwood, but then he wasn't able to break 70 over the final three days. He did finish minus two, but Fleetwood, who got off to that good start and maybe thought, hey, he could be a guy that would surprise some people. We all know how good of a golfer he is, but he always seems to be the bridesmaid, never the bride. But in this case, he was obviously nowhere to be found in this tournament. And you also had Zach Johnson test positive for COVID, so he didn't even perform overseas. And that's pretty much your golf season, people. I'll get into a little bit. Ryder Cup, again, I look at that as a non-major. I know to the diehard golf fan, it's the unofficial fifth major. But when we get to that and address it at that time, I'll be sure to get into it. And we'll discuss it further when we get to that point. So that does it for the golf as far as the majors go. Speaking of majors, and I owe a very sincere apology to a one Ash Barty because last week I know it was all about Novak Djokovic winning the men's side of the Wimbledon. Now that he has the first three Grand Slam victories that he's able to take home and knowing that he could close out the calendar Grand Slam, I didn't throw some love and shine toward Ash Barty for not only being the number one women's seed to win the tournament, but to do so even without Naomi Osaka and even though without some of the others who were not there due to injury or had left early, a la Serena. But for Barty to win second slam, she won the French in 2019. My apologies for not at least giving her her due for winning the tournament. And we'll see if that carries on to the US Open, which will be in about six weeks' time. All right, now let me turn my attention to the ice here. And then we had a couple more things before we get to the Hero and Zero of the Week. On Wednesday is the expansion draft. Now, I don't know from A to Z, soup to nuts, as to what players are exposed on any of these teams throughout the league. As we saw three years ago, really four when you think about it, the before the 2017-2018 season where the Vegas Golden Knights had their expansion draft. And we know the type of season they had. They went all the way to a Stanley Cup final before losing in five to the Capitals. So there's going to be similar advantages here for the Kraken. They're also going to have the number two pick overall in the entry draft come Friday. So next week, I'll recap as to who were the top players that were picked. Now, of course, we know a lot of the teams are going to protect their top players, whether it's from a salary standpoint or obviously from a talent standpoint. But again, it is a long list. There's 31 other teams that are leaving players exposed and you would think that whomever are the good players that are left on the 31 teams, you would think that the Kraken are going to select those players. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that you may see a few top players that are going to be picked here and on top of their number two overall come Friday night that the Kraken, you would think, are going to make out pretty good. Now, again, I'll recap and review it all next week, but we do have to 
give them some due because they're going to be a big player here moving forward, wondering if they're going to duplicate anything close of the success that the Golden Knights had a few years ago. That's not to say they're going to go to a cup. That's not to say that they're on the fast track to winning. I'm sure there may be some bumps and bruises, but at the same time, this isn't going to be like the Mighty Ducks in 93 or even the San Jose Sharks two years prior to that or the Florida Panthers. A lot of the teams that we've seen, Minnesota Wild, that have been part of expansion over the years where they had to go through their lumps, more downs than ups before they were able to get their bearings and be a competent NHL franchise. We would think that the Kraken, new fan base, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of energy, a little bit of a groundswell. We don't know about the key arena right now. Is it still under construction? They've gone through a major overhaul. Remember, that was the old arena that the Seattle Supersonics, the NBA team, used to play in. So there's been talk that the arena may not be ready for the start of the season in October. So we may have the Kraken on the road for two to three weeks before they can even play a home game. Obviously, that's for that time and not for now. So the Kraken are going to be front and center here, not only plucking and building their roster from the 31 teams, but also who they're going to select as the number two pick overall in the draft. So we'll keep that in mind. And you've also had some wheeling and dealings here, and the big one being the Edmonton Oilers. And I've talked about this time after time where you have a transcendent and franchise figurehead like Connor McDavid, and you also have another big-time scorer and Leon Dreisaitl, to now bring in a guy like Duncan Keith from the Blackhawks for Caleb Jones and a conditional pick, you wonder if, I'm not going to say he's going to be the final piece, but just like I talked about the Islanders a few weeks ago, how they're missing that one guy, that one player that you could plug in who has cup experience, winning experience, a pedigree, a guy that could bring the locker room together, a guy that could look at his teammates in the eye and say, hey, follow my lead. I'm a guy that's going to maybe not have that impact on the ice the way he once did. He is 37 years old, but he's been through the rigors. He's been through the wars. He's been through all of the scenarios you could possibly imagine on what it's like to not only get to a cup, but win a cup. That was a big move for Edmonton. Now, who knows how much Duncan Keith has left in his tank? He had been with the Blackhawks, I believe, for what, 16 years? And is he a bit long in the tooth? Probably, but I know he's going to be invaluable in that locker room and even on the ice to a degree. So that was a big move there by the Oilers to bring in a guy like that to take them to the next level. And hopefully that'll be the case for Edmonton, especially with McDavid and Dreisaitl, but more so McDavid because he's the guy that I believe is going to be the torchbearer once Sidney Crosby and Alexander Ovechkin finally hang their skates up. And speaking of hanging skates, Pekka Rinna, the longtime goalie of the Nashville Predators, hangs it up after 15 seasons. Don't need to get into all the categories that he leads as a team. Predators have been around for 20-some-odd years. Obviously, the most games played, wins, shutouts, etc. Won a Vesna in 2018. Was a finalist three other times. You know his number's going to be pulled up to the top of the rafters there in that Bridgestone Arena. So congratulations to Pecorino on an extraordinary career. And then also, now that everything has come out, the Stanley Cup celebration, how Victor Hedman was playing on a torn meniscus since March, 
We know about the ribs of Nikita Kucherov. They were hurt in game six by Scott Mayfield in the Islander series, but it was displaced and fractured. So he had that to deal with, playing with a flak jacket. We know hockey players are tough. And that includes every hockey player. But it's a matter of how tough you are when it comes to having to deal with playing tough. Not necessarily being tough. Because there's a lot of players that are tough by nature. But when you play with that type of injury and you have to endure that, a lot of hockey players just shrug it and move on. So as much as I can't stand, especially Nikita Kucherov, but for him to play the way he had throughout the whole postseason and could have been worthy of being the Smy Trophy winner as far as MVP goes. We all know that went to the goaltender and one Vasilevsky. But to add more to their legend, here they are playing with these injuries and winning another cup. So congratulations to those guys for pulling out all the stops even when they were more than injured and probably could have sat on the bench or been in the skybox there watching their team trudge through another Stanley Cup playoff. All right, now I have a couple of quickies here before I get to my hero and zero of the week. And with training camps opening a week away, some a week from today, a lot will be a week from tomorrow. The NFL, as of right this second, have had no players opting out of the 2021 season. So that's a good sign because as we all know, a lot of players, including a ton of Patriots, punted on last season and understandably rightfully so but right now not one player has come out to say that they're not going to play who knows if that means that they've been vaccinated or if they haven't been vaccinated that they just feel that the country has been opening up and that things have it's crazy because there has been some pockets where COVID has sprouted up and that the numbers have increased throughout the 50 states over the last couple of weeks and you got to wonder as we get into the fall and the winter is this whole thing going to start up again Remains to be seen, but as far as the players go, nobody has opted out, so that's a good sign. But let's see as we as we get closer to training camp, if anything happens to be flagged or raise an eyebrow as to a player or players saying, uh-uh, I'm not ready to get started here. We'll certainly keep an eye on that. And then you also have the story, speaking of Valiant and John Wayne, like as I said earlier, where we talked about Victor Hedman and even... Nikita Kucherov, how about Tom Brady playing all of last year on a torn MCL? So that's the meniscus, similar to what Victor Hedman had, who knows to what extent. But Tom Brady did state that he was hobbled all year long, and we all know how his season went and how it ended. So just add on another legend to his name by going through a whole season with a torn MCL. Who knows when it happened? Was it week one, week four? I doubt it was before the start of the season. Maybe it was and he wanted to hide it. He wasn't even on the injury report all last year, which that certainly makes you a little curious to wonder why that's not the case. Because even if he was healthy to play in these games, but just knowing that he had a bad knee and wearing a brace, that it wasn't even on one injury report as a probable last year. Obviously, that's well above my pay grade, and I could care less. If the guy played, he played. The injury report is for the gamblers and for the fantasy guys, which everybody knows I am not a part of, and I'm anti that. I can get into that some other time. If you haven't listened, and you probably wondering, Jay Reels, what are you, crazy? As much as you love sports, you're not a fantasy guy. Simply put, no. And then lastly, 
Friday night, the opening ceremony will take place in Tokyo, where you'll have little to no fans in attendance due to COVID, as we've talked about here just a couple of minutes ago. But in Japan, it's even that much heightened or that much more serious. How are you going to have this opening ceremony without the lights, without the just the whole circumstance, the dog and pony show that you're going to see there? It is going to take a lot out of what we've come to know and witness what the opening ceremonies are like. And I don't even know what to tell you. As I say time after time after time, if the Olympics were in my backyard, I'm going to draw the blinds because I have zero interest. And that goes for the winner too. I could care less about the basketball team. I know they lost to Nigeria for the first time ever and they've had a couple other losses here that people may be in shock or throw their hands up to say, oh my God, is this going to be a year where U.S. is not going to win the gold? We saw it back in 2004. And why would it be a surprise that if the U.S. were not to come out victorious with a gold, that people are going to be in shock or in, dare I say, horror that, oh my God, how did the U.S. lose? Who cares? And that's not a knock on the athletes. That's not a knock on every athlete who's trained their asses off over the last four years. Really now five when you think about it because they were supposed to perform last year. That they've been waiting for this moment. That they've pretty much all the blood, sweat, tears, work, etc. Diet regimen has come down to these two weeks. And I say not only to the U.S. athletes but to all of them. Good luck. I hope you come home with a thousand gold medals. But am I going to watch? Am I going to follow? Am I going to be on top of it? Am I going to... Say on a Tuesday night, oh, let me see what's going on. Nope. And again, it's not a knock on the athletes. I just have no interest. I don't care if the basketball team comes out without a medal. I don't care if, let Simone Miles, let her win a thousand medals. And I hope she does. But am I going to talk about it? No. Well, why am I going to talk about it? I mean, unless somebody does the 100 meter relay or the 100 meter dash in three seconds then maybe i'll bring it up but uh, there's nothing to report here there's nothing i'm sorry and again people are gonna say jay reels come on that's messed up it's the olympics there's nothing going on the nba season will be done by friday understood but as i've said time after time after time when it comes to the olympics when you watch it and you're in the middle of it yes you could be enthralled you could be riveted etc but once the closing ceremonies and the day after and it's all said and done, it's forgotten. Is it going to really be remembered? Yes, people are going to remember Michael Phelps and his 23 golds and all that. But can they tell you how many golds he won in each of those Olympics? No. And it's not because people, oh, they look at it as they don't care. I'm going to say yours truly doesn't because, yes, once it's done, it's done. And it's not like watching an NBA final and you're going to say, oh, Milwaukee, 50 years from now, you're going to talk about it. Yeah, you may talk about Simone Biles or even Michael Phelps 50 years from now, but yeah, are you going to look at the 2012 Olympics and say, oh yeah, that was the year Michael Phelps did this? You're going to be like, oh yeah, he just won gold medals. So I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to continue to pound it. But you did have word come down earlier today that one of the alternate gymnasts on the U.S. team contracted COVID. Now, none of the other gymnasts, including Simone Biles, were affected, but my thing is, is that are the athletes in Tokyo right now? Are they leaving today? 
I'm sure they got to get a few days to get acclimated to the time change and adjust to that for a few days because I don't know when their events are going to start. I would assume that they're already in Tokyo and if they are, I'm sure she's going to be quarantined, but this is what you're going to have to deal with people and that's probably going to be the bigger story, especially if it affects some of the big athletes if they come down with COVID, especially the US because nobody's going to care about the other countries, but uh, I mean, that's all I'm going to say about it. I'm not going to get too wrapped up in it, people, and I'm just going to move on to the next subject. I don't know what else to say. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you different. I wish I could say, hey, let's see what the U.S. basketball team is going to do. Or, hey, how many gold medals? If Simone Biles comes out with two medals instead of five, is that a letdown? Again, I can't Monday morning quarterback it because I'm not wrapped up in it. And if I'm not wrapped up in it, again, as I've said to you in the past, I'm not going to talk about something I don't know. And yes, I understand I could brush up on it and do research. I get it, but... The Olympics means zero to me. So just like I said, I'm not going to try to squeeze out any more juice from this lemon. Let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week goes to Nashville Predators prospect Luke Prokop, where earlier on his Instagram post became the first active player under NHL contract to come out as gay. He is a prospect 19 years old. I don't know. What type of player he's going to be? Is he going to be a guy that's up and coming? Is he a guy that's going to be just in your everyday lineup who will have some impact? I don't know if he's going to be a superstar player or a high-impact player on this Predator team. But remember, a month ago, Carl Nassib, the Las Vegas Raiders defensive end, he came out as gay, and you kind of wonder if this is going to be the trend throughout sports where players are going to come out. I think it's a good thing. I know people would say, well, Jay Reels, come on, now we're going to go down this road again? Well, hey, first time in the NHL. I could see if it was another NFL player, and if it was, you got to celebrate it. It's courageous. He's coming out. We understand in this day and age, it's good to have players come out, and I'm going to support it. So for first in football, where you had an active player do that, now you're going to have a first in NHL. Kudos to you, my guy. Luke Prokop, you're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to free agent cornerback Richard Sherman, a name that we all know very well in NFL circles. Facing five misdemeanor charges stemming from his arrest at his in-law's home in the Seattle region where documents were filed by the father-in-law to where he's got to put out an order of protection. They include two domestic violence counts, but it wasn't even that because his wife had come out and said it was not to that degree, but him trying to break into the home where it was alleged that he just wanted to see his kids. He showed up at the home intoxicated. I believe that was what was the report, allegedly. So he tried to barge his way in, made a scene. Cops came in. There was a tussle. Next thing you know, he's being put behind bars with no bond or no bail. So Richard Sherman, who's looking to get a job, and who knows if this is going to be his last chance at getting on an NFL roster so now we have to wait and see what these charges are going to be like as I said his wife did come out and say that there were no domestic charges or no attacks on her it was just him wanting to see his kids and making a scene but with all that being said and he had been contrite he did say that he acted unaccordingly and for him to go through the proper steps to get help and to get himself back to where he once was but Richard Sherman not a good look Unfortunately, this week, my guy, you are my zero of the week. So that'll do it, my good people. Episode 205, just about in the books. 
I appreciate you guys from the bottom of my heart. I really mean that each and every week to listen to what it is that I have to say about the world of sports. And as I said at the top, and uh, just a brief reminder, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast as I'm looking to increase this visibility to let everybody know that I'm here to stay. I'm not going anywhere to chatter about everything that's happening in the world of sports. So I thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's happening in the sports universe. So please subscribe, rate, review, throw me a few stars, even leave a review. If you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts and also an email with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever that may be, you could do so on Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels1, just a number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page, or the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up ASAP as long as you hit me up. And then. Lastly, to support this endeavor, you can go to my Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. What that's going to do is contribute whatever you want to put forth to the upkeep of the website, the equipment, anything and everything that has to do with the production of this podcast to keep pumping out week after week and hopefully twice a week. If you didn't, have a chance to listen to my last podcast with Matt Whitecross, the director of the docuseries, The Kings, that was just on Showtime, and it's on demand right now. You definitely want to check that out. That was just this past Thursday. So I would appreciate whatever you want to put forward. I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate your support. Because whether you do or do not know, this is why I love to talk about people. It's in my blood. It's in the DNA. It's in my voice. The passion, the fire of dissecting, breaking down analysis, opinions of games, scenarios, teams, players, you name it, on everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, the octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.